0: Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Wednesday, February 14th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dane. Jake Hughes is your producer, and it's Valentine's Day, which is appropriate as we love the guests we have coming on today, just like we love the guests we have coming on every day. But in just a bit, you're going to love hearing from the American Legion's Ariel De Jesus. He's going to fill us in on the Legion's efforts to help vets find the right employment and educational opportunities for them, including info on career fairs, resume help, and so much more. And then, Boulder Crest Retreat will be live in studio. Both Ken Falk, the founder of Boulder Crest, and Josh Goldberg, the executive director of the Boulder Crest Institute for Post-Traumatic Growth, well, they're both going to be here to talk about the amazing work Boulder Crest is doing to help our wounded warriors and about their second facility that recently opened in Arizona. All of that's still to come, but first, let's welcome super producer Jake Hughes to the program. Good morning, Jake. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you? I'm okay. Um, it's Valentine's Day, and, uh, well, she's... Don't remind me. She's uh, probably dealing with our son, so she's not listening. I, I haven't yet gotten anything from my spouse. Uh, well, I haven't gotten any for mine either, if that makes you feel better. She's not... Well, you don't have a spouse. <laughs> So that's, that's acceptable. Uh, she's not big into, like, the Valentine's Day stuff. I mean, I'll get her a little car and maybe some flowers or something like that uh, on the way home today. But we are uh, people who often forget about holidays and dates and stuff like that. Like, her birthday, I know it's in uh, February. It's actually a week from today. So uh, I-, I have to get a birthday gift, too. But <laughs> she can never remember mine. There are so many texts between us. You know, when we're going to deal with something like, I don't know, taxes or whatever, where you need the birth date of the other person, what's your birth date again? I think it's in November. Yeah. My birthday's in November. What's yours? Uh, It's one of those things. So, um, she might not even (laughs) realize if I don't get a Valentine's gift today, because I honestly had totally forgotten about Valentine's day until I was doing the write up of the intro to the show and said, Oh. Oh, it's February 14th. That means today is Valentine's Day. And as I said, appropriately enough, we have some guests that we love coming on to the show. Of course, the American Legion, Ariel De Jesus, who works in their education and uh, employment uh, division. He's going to be uh, coming on to talk to us about all the great things that the Legion is doing and the things that veterans need to look out for when they are seeking uh, work. And he talks about uh, his career. We already recorded the interview, a little behind-the-scenes info. He talks about his career Including, uh, you know, getting out of the Marine Corps after 20 years and realizing, you know, uh, these jobs that I know I can do, I don't necessarily have the credentials that they're looking for behind it. So he talks about his uh, path to finding employment, which uh, ended up working out pretty well for him. And is kind of a blueprint that I think a lot of veterans struggling with finding work uh, will be able to identify with and be able to learn from and then he talks about of course all what all the great things that the american legion is doing so let's talk about jobs and getting out now for me i got out and for the first uh let's see i came home on terminal leave in june i think it was so until january six months or so six seven months i didn't do anything man I didn't have a plan. I didn't do anything. Kind of figured, like, well, I'll probably give school a try. So I did. I signed up for a community college semester. Things went well there. Finished at community college a semester after that. Transferred to a four-year university. And I was very lucky. I ended up getting my first job based on a tour through my school, believe it or not. You know how you go to, like, well, you remember being in high school and they take you on tours to, like, a museum or a a factory or whatever to kind of show you how things work? There was uh, a class in the winter break, actually, at my school, that I was not a part of the class that was taking a trip into New York City to visit CBS Radio in New York at the time. CBS Radio doesn't exist anymore. Merged with Intercom, that's why we're now Intercom's Connecting Vets. I uh, got an offer like, hey, there's some open seats uh, on this tour, would you be interested in going? And I said, heck yeah. Went in there, threw on a suit, because I knew, hey, this is one of the places I might like to work. And when it came time to uh, do a and a with Lee Harris, who is the morning drive anchor at 1010 Winds, and also a Hofstra University Radio Hall of Famer, which is the school that I went to, uh, number one radio school in the country, there was a Q&A section, uh, and I was able to ask some questions. I asked, I think, almost every question that was asked during the thing. <laughs> College kids oftentimes uh, are reticent to ask questions because they don't want to look foolish. You know, they want to look cool. They don't want to look. I don't care about looking cool. You very well know that. That's nowhere near the top of my concerns. So I asked a lot of questions. And at the end, <laughs> Lee Harris said to me, like, you know, I, I like the cut of your jib. And I was like, well, that's appropriate. I was a sailor. He's, oh, really? talked about that, and he brought me into uh, the 1010 Wins office. I met the management there, and a couple months later, they gave me a call and said, hey, we're looking for some people. Would you be interested in applying? I did, and that led to me getting a job at 1010 Wins as a producer and eventually editor, which eventually led to me getting the job here at ConnectingVets.com. So I was very, uh, I would say, lucky, but also went through and did uh, one of the things that that people suggest you do, which is networking. When you know what industry you want to go into, Find people in that industry. Find veterans. Find people who are part of a network that you're a part of. In my case, my, my alma mater. Now, Lee Harris actually didn't go to Hofstra. He was in the uh, Hofstra Radio Hall of Fame for his work as a high school student volunteering at the radio station. But it, it just worked out. And it was because I went out there. I, I kind of asked questions. I got open. I was asking people like, hey, you guys looking to hire? You know, not not being shy about it, kind of being aggressive about it, which worked out well for me. But there's also people who don't know what career field they want to go into. And that was kind of what you were dealing with, right? When you got out originally, you thought you wanted to be a trucker.
2: Yeah, that was my plan. And uh, when I first got out, I, like most people do, I took a month off. I just sort of relaxed, decompressed, got all the military out of my system, well, as much as I could. And then I went to the application place and found out that one of the medications I was on, they don't allow. So mm. I had to wait another month. Oh, wow. I was sitting on my butt doing nothing. That wasn't very fun. So then I finally took the trucker job, and I had a blast for the first couple months when I was with the trainer. But then once I got on my own and started driving around by myself, I realized that the isolation and the constant moving really wasn't for me. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I had this idealized picture of being, you know, the nomadic man, always on the road, always on the road from one place rolling, to another,
0: rolling, 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 keep them dog never.
2: Never in one place more than a night, and then I'm
0: off on the road. Like Kane and Kung Fu, just getting into ventures around the country. That's I That's right?
2: right. Yeah, but <laughs> it turns out there's a lot more work to it than
0: that. <laughs> a lot more working, a lot more, as you said, isolation. I mean, and that's just something that when when I think about, like, you know, I could be a trucker. I see trucks driving on a long haul, and I'm like, I like taking a long drive and everything like that. What what actually made me realize that I wouldn't be able to do that is when I first started working here and was every weekend driving to and from my previous home in Long Island, New York, which is only like a 350-mile drive, but it was lonely and boring. And after the first couple of times, you're like, oh, i got to do this again. Whereas a trucker, that's all you're doing when yeah. you're out there. Some people love it, but it wasn't it, for it, you, right? It,
2: yeah, it just wasn't for me. And then I, when I finally realized that reality came crashing down, I realized, oh, well, my perfect plan just went to pot. So what do I do now? And luckily after like three months of searching the lovely people here, connecting com saw my resume and called me and liked me.
0: Yeah. I don't know why, but they did. Hey, so you're a likable guy. More likable than me. People meet you and they're <laughs> like, I like that Jake guy. Uh, I'm not so sure about the other one. That one's sitting in front of the microphone all day. Yeah, we'll, we'll see about him. Um, what was that process? How did you find out about the job? That's Because this is the kind of thing that people often ask. Like, you know, I'm looking for a great job. I'd like to find something there. How did you actually come across the the job here at Connecting
2: Vets? Well, I started out, I was sending out applications and auditions to any radio station between, you know, from here, from California to Maine, anywhere mm-hmm. that would take me. But then I specifically started to look for Washington because I lived here before when I was stationed at Fort myer in Virginia. And I was looking around, and I was I tried NBC, I tried CBS, and when I found one of the applications, it didn't say vets dot com, but it specifically said we're looking for military veterans and people mm. with broadcast experience in the military. Right, and so I was like, well, wow, that's like. Pretty much me to a T. So sending the application, I was super excited. And then the two weeks of silence that follows, yeah. sending in an application, yep. you know, nail biting. You know, only need the edge part of your seat, <laughs> like you like to say. You pay for your whole seat, but you'll only
0: need the edge. Sunday, exactly. Sunday, Sunday.
2: Exactly. And then when I finally got the call back, it was a great moment for me because I realized that my military career was cut short. And did not end the way I wanted it to. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, but uh, this was in the same boat,
0: different boats, but same uh, same route, I would say, on that one.
2: But now I get to do the job I love, broadcasting and journalism, and I
0: get to do it while serving the veteran community, and it's great. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And it's, I think, a good example for you can look at both you and me when it comes to this. I've had some people uh, say to me like, oh, man, what a charmed life. You know, you got before you even finished your school, you were hired at one of the top radio stations in the number one market in the country. And then after that, you go directly down to, uh, you know, this this veterans uh, radio that's just perfectly suited for you. Okay. Yeah. So my timeline is unbroken. I haven't had any time, uh, you know, from when I got into school and left school, it's been, I've I've been employed, which is great. Here's the thing. I applied while I was working uh, up in New York city. I wasn't on air. I was conducting interviews off air and then they were using those interviews. I was editing, running the newsroom, things like that. But I always um, prefer to be on this side of the microphone to be talking. I enjoy talking. It's something that's fun. i like We've discussing noticed. things. Hey, you know what? <laughs> what I get paid to do, baby. <laughs> I found the right job for me. So when uh, I applied, probably to 150 different jobs, and uh, sounds about right. Probably about 130. I never heard anything back from. Only. Two or three before here did I ever, uh, actually interview with a live person and not just exchange email information. And I was coming from, again, one of the top rated news radio stations in the country. One of the, the, the top two, it's usually number one. Um, and even with that and with a military background, although that some people don't really understand right. how it translates, which is another issue that people come into, um, Even with all of that, I wasn't finding any luck. I mean, I I interviewed with uh, an NPR station down in your hometown of Houston, Texas, and that one apparently, like I was, like they needed to hire two people, and I was number three, so I just (laughs) missed out on that one. Otherwise, I might have moved down to uh, to Houston to do that and a couple other ones in other places. But uh, while it, while you know, using my story in that unbroken timeline again of being gamefully employed from uh, even before I graduated from uh, school on the GI Bill. It's not been all sun and and happiness and roses and stuff. There were days where it was like, man, I don't think anybody wants me. I don't think anybody wants me to do this. I I believe that I'm good at it, but apparently some other people don't agree because I'm not even hearing back from some of these radio stations that were not even necessarily big radio stations. Some of them were pretty small markets that were looking for someone to do a morning uh, drive show or looking for a news anchor, one of which uh, in Connecticut, which was up near, uh, Uh, Up near where my dad lives, actually in the same town that my dad lives in, and it was the same company. And I knew people who knew people who worked there, and they put in a good word. And like I still wasn't hearing back. You got to keep at it. There are also people who apply to like one job, don't get it, and they're like, "Oh, because I'm done."
2: Yeah, it's just it's a horrible feeling that when you're well, I don't know you. I don't know if you necessarily felt this because you were employed at the time, but I know for me during those couple months, it was this panic of, okay, I'm running through savings. I got to get a job. Oh my gosh, what's going on? And I got two rejection letters from mm. the 150 easy jobs I submitted. I got from, from a satellite broadcasting station and from Fox News. Both said, thank you, but no. Everyone yeah. else just completely ignored me. And that that felt even worse than them telling me no. It's just like, I'm not even worth the response letter. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the pre-typed response of, sorry,
0: we don't want you. <laughs> Where you wonder, did they even get my application exactly then maybe you can justify it like that's what happened they didn't get my apple because if they did of course they would have hired me I think the worst one for me was um, with uh, a satellite uh, radio company who was looking for uh, like a part-time on-air full-time producer type job uh, for one of their uh, one of their stations that did focus on things like military issues to an extent Uh, I was more about like uh, politics and the military and all sorts of things and I thought like wow I'm a really good fit for this and I contact them and they contact me back and then I reply to them, and they're like, "Yeah, you know, let's set up a time that we may be able to talk about this." I reply to them, and then never heard back again. <laughs> I was like, "Well, I guess they changed their mind about me." Yeah,
2: <laughs> but but yeah, like I said, just that that feeling of almost stressful panic. Mm-hmm. looking for a job. That's why I'm really happy. There are groups like the American Legion that yeah. are helping service members out to sort of try to ease that burden just a little bit.
0: Yeah. And there are so many organizations out there. There's the the, the big VSOs that are going to be able to do a lot, whether you're a member or not. Now, if you're a member, they can probably do a little bit more for you. If you're not, you know, the VFW has their veteran service officers who are available to every veteran out there, as does the Legion. Um, and they are able to provide a lot of information for you and put you in touch with a lot of these organizations out there. Like the very first interview featured interview that we did on this show is with Brian Stan. Brian Stan's a former Marine. He's a silver star recipient. Um, he, he's an amazing guy who then went on to get a job in, uh, I believe the business world, excuse me, in the business world. And, uh, While he was there, uh, also did something that he had started while he was in the Marine Corps, mixed martial arts. He was a professional fighter with the WEC and then uh, the UFC after the UFC bought WEC, continued fighting and continued working in the civilian world. And now, among other things, uh, he was, when we spoke to him, calling fights for the UFC as a broadcaster and the CEO of Higher Heroes USA an organization that works to to coach people to talk to them about how to write a resume to talk to them about uh you know what the best ways practicing interviews that's another thing cuz in the military for all the great things that you gather from the military one thing that I think you don't is how to go after a job because do you know how i how we interviewed for jobs in the military Jake think about it
2: yeah you just submitted a, a one page your erb
0: and that's that's who i am yeah I, I, for mine, when I, when I got up to like the E5, E6 level, it would be a phone call with a detailer and they would, you didn't have to try to, um, you know, ask if there was a job. Of course there were jobs. You were on active duty military. They had to find some place to send you. You'd be told like, well, these are the ones that I have, uh, which one would you prefer? You give them the answer and then. Maybe you get it, maybe you don't, but it's not really an interview. It's not based on anything other than, all right, we've got this opening and we've got you and we're going to put you into this opening. Even sometimes when it's a a square peg going into a round hole how they do it.
2: Yeah, it's an automatic process. We have in the Army, we have things called branch managers that that manage every branch, like armor, cavalry, infantry, broadcasting. Right. And they have a list of fillable positions. And when it comes to your time, once you get in that window of when you're going to PCS, that's when they look at you and say, okay, we're going to put you, spin the wheel, stop
0: here. Yeah. yeah. And that's uh, that sounds very similar to what the Navy has, which is a detailer, which for every rate, which is like an MOS in the Navy, there's one person, typically a senior chief or a master chief on the enlisted side, one person who decides where everybody goes. That's their entire job. Yep. So you would call that person, which, uh, you know, because my uh, my rate was a fairly small one, were oftentimes people that I knew. So that was a benefit where they knew like, well, you're really good at this and they need somebody to do that here. Um, and uh, it, that, that oftentimes worked out well. Sometimes they'd send you to a place and you'd have an idea of what it was going to be. For me, that was going to Guam and the USS Frank Cable, where the Master Chief, who was the detailer at the time, was my former boss uh, a few years earlier and was like, Oh, I think this will be a great fit for you. It was not. He was wrong <laughs> about that. Uh, it was a bad fit. So bad that I was like, please get me out of here. Send me to Afghanistan. I'll happily go to a war zone instead of this tropical island. It was it was that bad for me. But again, that's not interviewing is something that puts you, uh, it can make you feel like you're a little bit behind the eight ball. Yep. For some people, again, I get paid to talk for a living. This is what I do. I can, I can usually sell myself pretty well. So interviews came pretty easily for me. So I was very lucky with that. Whenever I got to the interview process, I was always confident uh, in my ability to, to sell myself to someone looking to hire. Again, I didn't get too many interview processes. <laughs> that was part of the problem for me. The big issue for me was the resume. I never written a resume. The closest thing I'd done was like writing my own eval, your evaluation in the Navy. Uh, I don't know how it works in the Army, but as an E6, you're writing your own. You submit it to the chief. The chief goes like, oh, I'm going to look at this, change this, change that. Then it goes up to the uh, the division officer and all that stuff. And uh, that was the closest i come, but it's very different. You're checking off boxes and then giving like an itemized list of a few things that you've done that you think stick out or would make you stick out uh, against uh, the other people that you'll be compared against and things like that. A resume, I was like, well, how long should it be? (laughs) What should be on it? People are telling me, oh, it should only be one page long. Other people telling me it should be a whole bunch of pages long. And I'm like, well, which is it, man? Which Which I didn't know. I'd look online, I'd find different answers, and I didn't look at any of those organizations like a Hire Heroes USA or Hiring Our Heroes or all the other ones that are now out there that help you with resumes. So I just kind of winged it for my first ones that I put together, brought them in finally uh, at my school, uh, met some people who had looked at resumes before. we were like, yeah, bring it in. Let me see it. I'll tell you what's wrong. And eventually I learned everything was wrong with it. Yeah. And like, this is not good.
2: <laughs> yeah. I did this the same thing happened to me when I made my resume. I I had a friend help me and they made it really fancy with all these different fonts and boxes and stuff. And it, it was just it was beautiful. Like it was a work of art, man. But then when I started submitting it, didn't get responses. I finally went to the civilian organization in Houston that helped me out and looked at the resume and said None of the companies are going to look at this. I was mm-hmm. like, well, huh? Why? Because there's, because a lot of, if you don't know, a lot of jobs have an automated machine that will like fill in boxes from your resume. And if it's not in a certain format, they can't accept it. I, I had no idea.
0: Yeah. There are a lot of things that we just don't know coming out of the military environment. And I think when we think of people who have been in longer, you and I both did 13 years, that's a pretty long time. There are people who do 20. 30 years get out, and that's been, they've done things a very specific way for a very long time, and then they get out and they're like, oh, resume, well, here's what, I, it's an issue, and it's something that, again, the Legion is working on, as well as many other organizations, and we're going to talk to Ariel De Jesus of the Legion about that coming up in just a little bit. Now, have you ever heard of Army Lieutenant General Christian degru No, I have not. Do you know why you haven't heard of him? Why is that? He's not a lieutenant general in the army. Oh, it's not in the army at all, but he pretended that he was <laughs> and he's now under arrest for pretending to be a US army general who wanted to impress a woman that he had met, so he chartered a helicopter And had that helicopter fly unexpectedly to the headquarters of a North Carolina technology company last year. This is according to the feds uh, who were testifying Monday in the trial. The 57-year-old DeGru is charged with pretending to be a military officer, which carries a maximum of three years in prison. So on November 6th, he hires a pilot and a helicopter to have him uh, fly to this technology company again to impress a lady because you know, that's what men do stupid things to impress women. <laughs> yep. We, we do that. We're pretty, uh, we're pretty good at it. Typically. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, not allowed to be there. It landed at a, a sports field near the corporate campus or on the corporate campus, a soccer field. in particularly this is the SAS Institute in Cary, North Carolina. Security officers from the company approached, and he, and this guy steps out in full military battle dress uniform and displaying three stars, implying the rank of lieutenant general. He saluted the security officers, and they saluted him back. But then one of the security supervisors was a little bit suspicious and asked, started asking some questions of DeGruy. DeGruy tells him he's there to pick up a female employee to take her to Fort Bragg for a classified briefing that had been authorized by the president. Oh, wow. Oh, can you this imagine? Guy shooting for the stars. Helicopter shows up. Not a military helicopter. It's got a three-star general gets out of it and says, yeah, I'm here to pick up uh, Jessica Jessicason. That's a fake name. If there is a real Jessica Jessicason out there, my apologies. Uh, and the security guys. Here's the thing about security guys, and it doesn't really say in the story a lot of them tend to have military backgrounds. Yeah. A lot of people working in security have at one point or another worn the uniform, so I'm guessing that there's a chance that this guy who got a little suspicious was uh, was asking the questions for those specific reasons. Uh, DeGruy later acknowledged to federal agents he never served in the military, just got the uniform, went to an Army-Navy shop or something like that. The woman expected him to arrive in a car. Instead, they went on a 30-minute helicopter ride in the air over Raleigh, North Carolina, she had no idea, according to her, that he was flying a helicopter to pick her up. Uh, apparently, Mr. DeGruy wanted to pursue a romantic relationship, but the woman in question, she was married. <laughs> uh, ha, ha. <laughs> she just kind of went along with it, didn't really know what to do. Uh, investigators suspect that DeGruy is mentally ill, but did not go into detail on exactly what it would be. Uh, local police were notified after she returned uh, when the organization said like, yeah, she was gone for a half hour. She wouldn't go on to Fort Bragg. Uh, it, it's, it's a very interesting thing. And uh, this guy, I mean, stolen valor is one thing, but stolen valor, including a helicopter that is taking things to the next level, having a, a pretending to be a three-star general, Getting a helicopter to take you in there. I mean, this guy was cosplaying as a flag officer, a general officer, and did it to a, a very high degree. Yeah, he was dedicated. It's one of those things where you're like, you know, I, it's, it's, who was he really hurting? I mean, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't landing that there, but this is, uh, it's bizarre more than anything. It's just one of those things, like. I don't know exactly what's going on here. You're just thankful that the security guys were able to kind of raise some red flags and going, like, I don't think this guy is who he says he is. Also, if the now pre-
2: <coughs>
0: Yeah, I had a little cough right there. Ooh. Uh, as the general uh, flies in on a non-military or governmental helicopter saying he's there on orders of the president. I mean, that's just weird. And you have to assume that there is some mental illness there beyond just wanting to impress a lady. We're wanting to impress you, the listeners. That's why we have some great guests lined up. We've got Ariel DeJesus from the American Legion coming up in just a minute. And then we're going to have the founder of Boulder Crest Retreat and the executive director of the Boulder Crest Institute for Post-Traumatic Growth coming up later in the show. It's the morning briefing back after this. Welcome back to the morning briefing for Valentine's Day, Wednesday, February 14th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer in ConnectingVets.com. Well, that's your website, and we mean that. Created by veterans, for veterans, and focusing on the military and veteran experience. You want to find help in getting a job? We've got that. You want to find help in filing a VA claim? Got that too. Got an OTH discharge? You want to upgrade? Of course, we have that and so much more brought to you by a team comprised almost entirely of veterans. For example, 13 years in the Army for Jake, 13 years in the Navy for me. Put us together like Voltron, 26-year E12, which our guest in studio can tell you how impressive that is. Who is that guest? Well, guests, plural. Ken Falk is the founder of Boulder Crest Retreat, and Josh Goldberg is the executive director of the Boulder Crest Institute for Post-Traumatic Growth. Ken, Josh, good morning, and thank you so much for joining us on The Morning Briefing today. Hey, good morning, Eric. Good morning, Jake. Uh,
3: Thanks for having us.
0: morning. Josh, your first time in the studio, just follow Ken's lead. He's an old pro at this. So, Ken, just to give people a little refresher, you would know how impressive a 26-year E-12 is because you were a warrant officer in my United States Navy and, in fact, worked within the EOD community. So, give us just a very brief background on uh, your time in service, when you joined, and what you did while you were in
3: yeah, well, I was a master chief, not a warrant officer. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I thought you were a warrant officer. <laughs> no. I
0: got you convinced. Was convinced. I got you uh, confused with somebody else. I think. So
3: A twelve uh, rings a good bell. There you go. Um, <laughs> well, for, first of all, congratulations on the Hill Vets one hundred. Oh, thank That's, you so much. Uh, I sit on the board of uh, Hillvetts and and I'm, you know. I'm pretty really sure happened. that was a mistake,
0: no, or no, they no. judged <laughs> it on good looks, in which case it makes sense that I'm included. But when you look at the list of people I'm alongside on there, uh, it, it's an honor to just be uh, mentioned in the same breath as most of them. It's Amazing. Uh, incredible.
3: Yeah. Amazing, and we need lots of Navy guys on there.
0: So. <laughs> the more the better,
3: right? The more the better. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I retired. I spent 21 years in the Navy, the majority of them in EOD, not not all of them. I started here uh, not far from your office in the Ceremonial Guard over at Anacostia. Oh, okay. And, uh, and ended up in, in EOD and spent uh, 21 years in the Navy, retired as a Master Chief in San Diego back in 2002, and started a small company uh, that ended up doing pretty well. And early in the war, my wife and I started the EOD Warrior Foundation, and that's how I got into Wounded Warrior Care and, and what inspired us out of Boulder Crest Retreat.
0: And Boulder Crest Retreat, for those who don't know, is an amazing place. I had the pleasure of visiting the facility in Virginia, and uh, it was my first out-of-the-office excursion when I first moved down here when we started Up Connecting Vets. It made such an impression on me, not just the place, but the people you have there, people like Dusty Baxley and the programs that you have that are operating in a space where, honestly, uh, the VA uh, isn't doing as much. You guys are kind of outside the box at Boulder Crest, right? Where did the idea for the Boulder Crest Retreat come from?
3: Well, the initial idea came from uh, there was a two-year period, about 2010 to 2012, where we had um, 71 amputees over about a 52-week period Mm. uh, in Afghanistan, just DOD troops. And we started bringing, my wife and I started bringing the families out to our home, which is uh, adjacent to Boulder Crest Retreat now in Virginia, we had a 200-acre estate, and we ended up donating 37 acres of the property to build the retreat, um, just really initially to give families a home away from home, away from the hospital, right? because uh, it was tight. You know, the average amputee was inpatienting for three or four months and outpatienting for another year to maybe sometimes three years. So it was a long time to be in that hospital, um, and that's why we thought the place would be, you know, really um, uh, welcoming for, for, for the families. And then uh, one thing led to another. We were running a caregiver retreat one weekend, and I was sitting with a young lady on the couch, and, and I said, how's your weekend going? She goes, this place is amazing. I'm having a great time. She goes, but I truthfully, I wish my husband would have lost his legs. And I said, that's horrific. Why would you say yeah, that?
0: That's a horrible thing to
3: say. And uh, she said, because nobody knows what's wrong with him. And I said, mm-hmm. well, what's wrong with him? And she said, he's got PTSD. That's what the doctors are saying. And I said, well, let me you know, dig into that. I knew a little bit about PTSD at the time, but not much. Uh, just by happenstance, the next day I'm in Frederick, Maryland with my wife for lunch and in the, and there's a medical museum of the civil war in Frederick, Maryland and the front windows, this book entitled PTSD from the civil war to Vietnam. So I bought it and I read it and I thought, well, this, you know, and I grew up as a kid in the, you know, during, during the Vietnam war and I saw what happened when Vietnam vets came back and I watched, you know, the diagnosis of PTSD, which wasn't even a, a, a thing until 1980, right. um, and I went on this journey. I bought a plane ticket, and I literally, I went to Harvard, I went to Chicago, I went to um, San Francisco, I went out to a, a, a really interesting program out in Napa Valley, I went down to L.A., I went to San Diego, and I talked to the best psychiatrist, psychologist in the world, the guy who led the, the, the diagnosis for PTSD in 1980, and almost every one of them said to me, what we do for PTSD doesn't work. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why, Why if it doesn't work, why are you doing it? And they'd say things like, well, you know, Ken, um, it's the only thing that the insurance companies will reimburse for. It's hmm. uh, it's the only thing that's approved in our manuals. And I'm like, well, that's not a really good answer. I mean, I'm an EOD guy. If we do the same thing that's wrong over and over again, you're, you're unlikely to survive it. Yeah. So anyway, I ended up meeting through a friend. I meet this guy named Dr. Rich Tedeschi down at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, who 30 years earlier than my initial introduction to him, he had this term post-traumatic growth and I was really intrigued by the term and and I started to read about it and do some research and sure enough um, uh, it it, it got my interest and I said to Rich you know I understand you've really studied post-traumatic growth for the last 30 years but 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 do you think we could teach people how to achieve it Mm. and when you look at you know the challenges in the mental health world there's two major challenges in the mental health world the first one is the stigma associated with mental health care period right right 50% Fifty percent of veterans who are eligible for VA care won't even go to the VA. You know, it's a stigma issue, and the VA does great things, right? So it's but but they just don't want to go because it's a stigma. Yeah, and most men specifically don't want to you know think that something's wrong with their head. And uh, the second issue is what they call a lack of cultural attunement, meaning that the the, the therapist and the and the veteran don't necessarily connect. Mm-hmm. And if you don't connect, you don't sit through the entire protocol of your mental health treatment you're not going to get better so what we did is we, we said well let's turn both of those things on their head let's create a training program not a therapy program because you know we know in the military we all love to go to the next great training thing and the second thing was to you know mix our therapists our, our licensed therapists with combat veterans and really have a peer model that work because what we've seen around the world is the majority um the majority of, of our um, successful programs worldwide are, in fact, peer based models. So,
0: and that's know. important. And, and, and one of the things I heard you say there is again, particularly with male veterans, not wanting to uh, admit or f- really talk about the fact that there might be something wrong with them. That's a male thing that I think goes on so many levels. It's, it's you can draw the analogy of not asking for directions. Oh, I know where I'm going. (laughs) And if you don't really know where you're going, you get even more lost the longer you're out there not asking for directions. And there's often uh, a a fix to it. And that is asking for directions. That is finding out those things. And one person who I think knows a little bit about that is our other guest who joins us in studio, Josh Goldberg. He's the executive director of the Bouldercrest Institute for Post-Traumatic Growth. Uh, He was named that just about a month ago. That means he's responsible for leading the development and delivery of training, technology, research, and evaluation, as well as social and policy change solutions based on the science of post-traumatic growth. So Josh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be part of the Boulder Crest team. Sure. So
1: <clears throat> I had a, a pretty conventional civilian background. I worked at big businesses. I, I spent six years working at ExxonMobil in Dallas um, and got to a place in my life where I was been successful in terms of what we value in the civilian world. So kind of call it a rap song, money, power, and respect,
3: Right. and, and <laughs> felt
1: deeply unfulfilled within. And I felt a, a really kind of a, this dissonance between the life I was living and what I really wanted to be doing. Mm. And I stepped away from that. I got divorced. I made some very challenging decisions uh, to separate from the life I had, and which was very liberating and at the same time incredibly frightening. And I, I really did I knew what I wanted, but I didn't know how to get there. And uh, as fate would have it, I had one thought in my mind, and the thought was I should do something service related for somebody else. About a week later, and this is about in 2012, a week later, a friend of mine asks if I'll have dinner. Uh, with a, a guy on the Dallas Cowboys and his wife. And the mm. wife had lost her brother in Afghanistan, was a Marine. Mm. And I, I go and, and I, I hear this story of this, this, this uh, young man, David, who passed away. And I also hear the story of veterans struggling. And for the, for the first 30-plus years of my life, I'd never heard anything about military veteran culture or been part of that world. Right. And so, so and this kind of brings the story back to Dusty Baxley, who was also on the Hill Vets 100. Um, so I go out to a program to observe it, to see how I can be of use. And I'm sitting there talking to Dusty. And for those of you who don't know, Dusty's about 6'4", 250 pounds. He, he pair jumped into, uh, into Panama. He's a big man. Army Ranger. And Army Ranger. His arms yeah. are the size of my, most people's heads. And uh, Dusty looked at me and said, what are you doing here? And I said, I want to be of help. And he looked at me and he said, um, you seem like you could be of help. That, that could be a possibility. He said, but you're going to do one thing first. And he said, you're going you're gonna to fix yourself. And he used uh, more more uh, colorful language. <laughs> and, and he said, you're going to fix yourself first. And, and and he and other veterans, including Ken, helped me get to a place where I understood what I was supposed to do with my life, taught me how to be a man, taught me how to be a leader, and I really had this incredible training experience of my own. And, and at the end of it, I was just like, holy cow, this is the community I want to be a part of, and this is the community, I think most importantly, that if it's well and, mm-hmm. and fulfilled – can change the country in very, very positive directions. Because one of the things we can say definitively without making a political statement is leadership is lacking in communities, it's lacking in families, it's lacking in our country wholesale. And I think uh, the way we regard uh, Secretary Mattis is a good example of the power of combat veterans to bring calm and, and peace and understanding to our culture. And I think that's what, for me, is my life's work, is ensuring that combat veterans can live great lives. Because if they do... The rest of us will flourish as civilians.
0: The things that veterans offer to the community, and we've been able to talk to so many on this program, I, it, the, the variety of things that veterans offer is endless. The problem is that some veterans, uh, as you said, almost get caught in a loop of of suffering from various issues, from various traumas, whether they be physical, whether they be mental. And it's getting them out of that loop and allowing them to flourish that's the key. And that's what Boulder Crest Retreat is all about. We're speaking with Ken Falk, founder of Boulder Crest Retreat. Retreat. Retired Master Chief. See, I start mixing my words together. It's early in the morning. He's the founder of Boulder Crest Retreat, and Josh Goldberg is the Executive Director of the Boulder Crest Institute for Post-Traumatic Growth. You've all been working, the team over there, on finding new and better ways to approach these issues and have had success and have also had growth. You just recently opened, uh, late in 2017, I believe it was, a new second facility. Obviously, you have the one in Virginia at the foot of the mountains. It's a a beautiful place. I've been able to be there. Hope to be able to get down to the one in Arizona, where you've now opened one on the western half of the country, out in the desert. So tell us about uh, that experience and what's going on at the Arizona Boulder Crest Retreat.
3: Yeah, so what, you know, really what's happened is we put this post traumatic growth curriculum together, the, our flagship program we call Warrior Path, and, and we, um, we started measuring it, right? Looking at program evaluation, because you'd go back and start talking to people and say, hey, I think we're onto something here. And they'd say, well, we need scientific evidence. So we got a grant and we have two scientists doing an 18 month longitudinal study, which we're, by the way, we're a year into now, and our results are about three times better than traditional mental health care. Yeah, and, and and in the mental health community, what they really want to focus on is just measuring symptom reduction, which we think is very important too. But what we really want to understand is what's the quality of life and what's the growth after this trauma look like? And that's what we're measuring, which we're so excited about. And uh, and, and we just released the one-year data and it's, it's like I said, off the charts. So our biggest donor here in Virginia, the Clark family that's here lives here in Bethesda, came to us and said, "We really love what you guys are doing. We love your success. What can we do to help you expand?" And I mm. said, well, ideally, we'd we'd have something east and west. I mean, in an ideal situation, we'd have ten or twelve of these places around the country. Um, fundraising is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, um, yeah. uh, to say the least, but but to have two of these uh, at least starts to put a dent, you know, in the problem and allows us to increase our numbers, you know, double our numbers. And we went out looking. We started in Southern California. We went to Northern Arizona and ended up down in Southern Arizona, not far from Fort Huachuca, um, in a a beautiful place, a a piece of property that sits also at the base of a mountain, Mount Wrightson, uh, at 5,200 feet of elevation. So unlike Phoenix or Tucson, which are, you know, brutally hot, this part of the country is not. We bought a turnkey operation. It's the only piece of private property inside of the Coronado National Forest. Oh, wow. Here in Virginia, our property is you know, home to many warriors, including Mosby's Rangers, who used the mountain as a lookout during the Civil War, Revolutionary War. Um, uh, soldiers camped on our property. George Washington and his brother John surveyed our property. And out in Arizona, it's the home of the Apache War. So it's a very warrior piece of land which, you know, the, the place itself really starts to lend towards the, the healing process. So we're really excited. We officially opened in November. We bought the ranch last March, officially opened in November, uh, November 30th of last year. And our first programs uh, have been run. Our first Warrior Path program will be run in March. So we're really excited to, to get it going.
0: How important do we think the setting is? Because one thing I noticed when I visited Boulder Crest in Virginia is how serene the location is. And not just your location, but uh, the village surrounding it. It's a historic town. There's historic markers anywhere, everywhere, which as a history junkie myself, I'm like, I'm coming back here just to hang out in the town. Ken may see me wandering around taking pictures of historic signs. Uh, but when you get onto to the, the Boulder Crest retreat itself, a beautiful place. I was there on a day when it rained and it was still just kind of glorious. The mist rising up off of the ground that just... The whole place almost, I I don't know how exactly to put it, but I think serene is a good word, that it was a relaxing place. Even though as I'm there to get information and gather information and look around, I, I felt more relaxed as soon as I got out of my car there. How important do you think that is to have places like you have now in Arizona and you have in Virginia as opposed to having a facility like in the middle of Chicago or in downtown Houston or something like that? Well, I
1: think when we, we, we looked at that, and I think with these two doctors that we work with, Brett Moore, who was twice deployed as an Army psychologist, and then Rich Sedesky, and we said to them, said, can you help us kind of dismantle and understand what it is about this that is the, is the secret sauce, is the recipe? And they identified four things. They said our philosophy, which is growth and strength-based, training-oriented, not treatment-focused. The second was the people, right? That The people who work, like you described, right. care deeply. I care deeply about the fate of combat veterans. I want them to live great lives. They feel that. They understand that that we believe in them even at times when they don't believe in themselves. And that makes a big difference. The third of the programs, right, effective programs that are proven, and the fourth, to your point, is place. And I think you can't overstate. And the science is very, very strong about the quality of kind of healing properties, places where you feel like you're willing to let your guard down, that you're willing to talk about stuff that are physically safe and also feel in some ways emotionally safe because they're just places where it, they feel historic, they feel strong, they feel grounded. And I think you can't understate it there's no question you could have those in an urban environment, right? You can go to Central Park in New York and all oh, of a yeah. sudden find yourself out out somewhere. And I think with the Institute, one of the things we're trying to figure out is not just how do we deliver cutting-edge programs that work well at our, at our facilities, but how do we influence effectively the mental health system, the VA, to be able to take the pieces that they can and actually make them work in their settings. And so I think um, when you look at things like gardens and you look at place, you can't overstate the value of those because they contribute to this environment where someone's like, all right, the, I like these people and I love this place. And I think from that point forward, you have their trust and you have a sense of engagement that you don't get when you go into a therapist's office. I've been to a therapist's office. It's not, it's cold, right? right? And you want a warm environment.
0: If the Boulder Crest Retreat was in like downtown Manhattan, it's almost like all the good work that you do might be undone the moment people step out. If it's at rush hour, there's too many people. I mean, there's there there. I think the setting, obviously, as you said, along with the other factors that you guys are working with at Boulder Crest Retreat, and we're working with Ken Falk, the founder of the Boulder Crest Retreat, and Josh Goldberg, executive director of the Boulder Crest Institute for Post Traumatic Growth. Now, as we have talked about, the VA is uh, is doing a lot of great work. You guys are doing work in a different way. There are other organizations out there that are looking to help veterans who are dealing with these issues as well I mean are you at all proprietary about the Boulder Crest way or would you like to see the the means and methods that you guys are using expand to other organizations and other places even if it's not under you know Ken Falk's uh, watchful gaze
3: yeah no that's that's the whole purpose of what we're doing so we have um, this we have uh, the Marcus Foundation gave us a grant to basically build the warrior path curriculum to test it across four pilot programs and then study it for 18 months. And as part of that agreement, it was that we once once we finished that project, we could take this curriculum and share it around the country with the like-minded organizations. And last right. year we held a conference and we had uh, seven organizations show up for for a conference at our facility. And I think four of the seven are are really underway to, to, hmm. to do it. One in South Carolina, one in Florida, one in Texas, and one in Washington State. So you know, that's our goal is that, you know, we can, we can find people who, who have a good donor base in their area, have a beautiful facility, and can adopt this curriculum and learn our, our, our philosophy. And, and, and that's what we're working on now. We're actually training uh, our Arizona staff right now just to test what that, what that expansion looks like. And we're also just kicking off the, the, the one of the Texas organizations as well. So we're really excited about uh, expanding this.
0: And that's fantastic to hear because, again, uh, for all the organizations out there that are doing great work, there are those who are doing great work but have their specific way they need it done. And if you want to do it their way, you got to join on and be doing it with them, working alongside with them, having a little bit of control over it. You guys really just trying to share this information out there and get these methods out to as many people as you can, which uh, is wonderful to hear. One way, I think, that Ken's going to be able to help get his message out is the fact that he is an author, or at least (laughs) will be a published author, coming up in just a couple of months. Uh, Ken, tell us about this literary project that you're working on that I believe is coming uh, just a couple months down the road in May, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm actually a co-author. Josh and I are writing the book together. Uh, The book's called Struggle Well. And we've been, so we've had for probably two years, people have been asking us, do you think what you're doing with veterans will work with civilians? Mm. And you know, the immediate answer is, you know, kind of, I don't know. And then yeah. you start to think, well, why not? And, 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 and then we have, you know, we've had a lot of uh, caregivers come through our program uh, who necessarily aren't veterans. They're obviously military families, but, you know, most of the wives that we've put through the program haven't been um, veterans themselves. So we saw that success. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we had an NFL football player come through our, our program uh, who was struggling with his transition. Um, which was very interesting. Um, and as he's a changed man today, mm. uh, which was 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 interesting. And then we said, well, how could we, in a in a in a rapid way, how could we expand this philosophy um, quickly? and 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 one of the thoughts we had was, let's write a book. you know, let's write a book and and tell people what we're doing and not just tell them about other people's stories because that's what you see a lot in 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 books that that are designed to to tell you how to live a better life. It's like, well, Sally, you know, was paralyzed in a car accident and she went on to you know pole vault 20 feet you know in the air and it's like that's great and it's it's an amazing story but it's not maybe what you're dealing with as an individual so what we wanted to do was basically take our philosophy and put it into a prescriptive kind of format through the book to show people that you can live and should live a very very rewarding life in the aftermath of trauma and and that's what we're so excited about is to be able to share that and the book's going to come out on may 1st we've uh Still working with the publisher to get all the final details together, but it's um, it's really close. The, the, the manuscript's locked down, so we're really excited about that.
0: It's interesting talking about how it might apply to civilians, and I think there are certain things that maybe only apply to veterans. And as we know from the Navy's old saying, it's not just a job, it's an adventure. But if you break it down, it's a series of jobs and different jobs. The EOD experience is different from the Army Ranger experience, is different from the Marine Corps Infantry experience, is different from the Air Force Combat Photographer experience. So if it works for people who have different experiences from different jobs within the military, kind of makes sense that it might work in the civilian world. Josh, as the co-author of this book, as someone who's working on the Boulder Crest programs out there and continuing to develop them, Where do you hope the the Boulder Crest method uh, eventually goes? Do you hope that this becomes a a nationwide phenomenon that's being used in federal facilities as well as private facilities? I mean, how do you look at it and what do you want to see?
1: And I think, you know, mindset matters so much. And One of the stories that we are heartened by is the story of the the 591 men who were prisoners of war in Vietnam during the uh, and I got out in 1973. Right. And these guys were in prison from nine months to 10 years. And, and they returned home with the expectation that they would probably be institutionalized, right? That they would never come back home truly right. and they would, they would kind of forever be stuck in North Vietnam. And the truth is they came back and 4% of that group had PTSD and 60 to 80% of those guys were better off because of their experience in – as treated as a war criminal, tortured, beaten, huh. starved. They were better for it. And I think that mindset, that recognition, that understanding that when we go through really difficult times – they're not meant to diminish us, and they don't permanently diminish them us if you don't let them. And I think – so from a mindset perspective, from a point of view about trauma, about struggle, I think what, what would be most important to me, and, and, it, and it drove why we wrote the book, is that we understand that, that trauma and struggle in our lives is inevitable. We will lose our parents. We will go through divorces. We will lose jobs. We will also get jobs. We will have kids. We will have you know, joys and sorrows. And, and those are inevitable. And the question is, what do you do with that? How do you handle that? And how well equipped are you? So, for us, I think the first thing is to propagate and proliferate a different view of things that isn't the PTSD world that right. says when bad things happen, your life is diminished as a result. And for us, the Institute was created to be a megaphone to be able to integrate that idea and the, the modalities that we've developed at Bouldercrest into lots of different institutions. And whether that's, you know, we went to the EOD school last week and trained students. So now all of a sudden you're getting to 22 year old kids well before they've ever deployed to combat. And I think for us, it's how do we work with the mental health community? How do, we, how do we give people a different way of thinking about these issues? And then how do we actually work to train them to better connect with their clients or personnel or whoever it is they're working with? And, and a big focus for us is leadership. And, and the, the Hanoi Hilton story is about leadership. And what we see is well-led units, especially in respect to mental health and the military, have much better results in terms of the, the, their folks. And Ken likes to say, that PTSD is more of a leadership issue than it is a mental health issue. And I think for us, it's about creating leaders in our communities, in the mental health world, and so forth.
0: You know, what you said there reminds me a little bit of one of our fellow Navy veterans, Jocko Willink, retired SEAL officer. He has a great speech called, Good which means if something bad happens, good. It's an opportunity to grow. If you're still alive, you've got a chance to get better. And it sounds like you know there are obstacles still in front of Boulder Crest, but seeing what you guys have been able to accomplish already, I'm confident that you're going to overcome them and Boulder Crest Retreat will continue to grow. If people are interested in finding out more about Boulder Crest Retreat, Ken, uh, joining the team, donating, uh, trying to seek out some help, where do they go to do so?
3: Yes, yeah, so our website's bouldercrestretreat.org, O R G. And you can follow us on Facebook. We do a great job, I think, posting things on Facebook. So it's, it's a great opportunity uh, for veterans to follow us.
0: You guys are doing a great job on social media, but an even better job in person, helping our wounded warriors and those who are facing so many issues. Have the ability to overcome it thanks to groups like Boulder Crest Retreat. We want to thank Ken Falk, Josh Goldberg, and Ariel De Jesus of the American Legion who joined us earlier. Morning briefing Wednesday over. See you tomorrow. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports.
1: The clock at four. Donchich. The Step Back three. You bet. Music. You said my word.